The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now, I want to, we're going to take a look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. So let me go ahead and tell you up front. I was trying to do Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 in one sermon today. And um, in the last, in the 8 o'clock service, I found out that was not the case. And so it's now part 1 is what you're getting. Part 2 will be next week. Uh, this is just such a, it really deserves three or four months to tell you the truth. And I was trying to do a 30,000 foot and I only got up to 15,000 feet. So we're going to do it part one and part two. And uh, But to set up this significant text, chapter four, verses one through 16, I want to read the conclusion of the first three chapters of Ephesians in Ephesians 3.20. Would you look at God's word? This is the word of God that is being read to the glory of God and by the grace of God in the hearing of the people of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church And in Christ Jesus, there's your key phrase, and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever, and by his grace and mercy, may this his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Uh, Do any of, have any of y'all ever done this? Um, I did, because I was kind of told by my grandparents I should do it. And when I first became a Christian, I had a reason to do it. Have you ever, have you ever, have you chosen a life verse? Any, anybody here, just raise your hand. Have you chosen a life verse? You got, yeah, a bunch of you have done that. Chosen a life verse. Well, I, and I'm not saying you have to. That's not a requirement to be saved or anything. It's just, does a lot of Christians do that. Mine's Matthew 6.33. I'll never forget. I realized I needed to choose one, so I went out and prayed about it, and, and God led me. Uh, to a life verse. It was Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, I got pretty excited about it. Now, my, my, my whole Christian life has been trying to get ahead of my wife somewhere along the line. Since I'm supposed to lead her, I tried to get ahead of her somewhere. And so I went in, and, um, and I, it was about 9.30. That meant I had to wake her up. And I said, uh, hey, honey, uh, I've got a life verse. Do you have one? And uh, she said, yeah. I said, well, can't even beat her at this one. Uh, she said, I've got one. She said, now, honey, what is yours? She's trying to encourage me. Uh, that was It was close to patronizing, but not completely. And she said, honey, uh, what was yours? And I said, well, mine is seek ye first, Matthew six thirty three. seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And I said, and, uh, and what is yours? I figured it would be better. And she had a smile on her face. She opened her Bible and put me to the front page. And 
It was Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. I said, it's the same one as mine. She said, yeah, I know. And I said, well, that's great. I said, yeah. I said, would you like to marry me? And well, we're already married. It's okay. Maybe this is a, this is a seal of God upon our marriage here. We've got the same life first. But that's not all. Not only may you select a life first, but I know something if I ask all of you as believers, you would raise your hand to this one. Are there verses in the Bible that were life-changing? I know you got a life verse, but are there verses in the Bible that were life-changing? If you ask me, I could immediately go to a lot of them. I could go to um, Matthew 10, uh, 13 through 14. Uh, I could go to um, if, uh, Galatians 6. Uh, I mean, Galatians 5, uh, verses 21 through Galatians 6, verse 4. I could go to uh, so many texts that have just made such a gigantic difference but one of them would be the one we're looking at this sunday and now next sunday uh part one this sunday part two next sunday ephesians 6 uh 1 through 16 i'll tell you how it happened it was in the 1970s i was in college and i was just getting out of college and then i went into seminary and as i got into seminary I um, began to do ministry, and somebody said, you know, Pastor, I want to be an encourager to you, and here are some, here's a little book that really helped me, and the series of sermons that it came from. The guy that wrote the book and preached the sermons, and so he gave me the book and gave me some, here's something, all of the college and singles you don't know about, it's called a cassette tape. They gave me, he gave me a, a set of cassette tapes and, uh, which were the sermons from which the book was written. The pastor was a guy named, uh, Stedman and, um, uh, Roy Stedman and the booklet and the sermon series was called Body Life. The life of Christ in the body of Christ and how it's manifested in a local church. That was life changing. For one thing, I finally got a term referring to what I never felt comfortable with the term reverend. I never felt, and I didn't feel comfortable with the term minister because I knew everybody was supposed to minister, not just me. And, uh, but then I got it from this text. Harry, what is the term from this text that you got that enabled you to label your vocation and calling from the Lord? Well, I can, and that's next week in part two, we get to that one. But it was such a life-changing text for me in terms of pastoral ministry. And so I, I really was looking forward as we've gone through these four texts. The four texts, First Peter chapter 4 uh, gave us the five framing principles. First Corinthians 12, the ten understanding principles. And then last week, Romans 12, that gave us the connecting tissue of the spiritual gifts and the stewardship of them. How to discover them, develop them, and deploy them in the body of Christ. Uh, and so let me give you this distillation that we've put together from those first three texts and then we're going to dive into this one and I am praying this one has the essentials necessary for the stewardship of our spiritual gifts Ephesians 4 1 through 16 have the essentials I call it the five essentials of what's necessary to steward uh, the spiritual gifts 
as believers, as Christians, and as the body of Christ. So we're going to get to those as we walk our way through this. Let me give you the distillation from the previous three texts that we've studied. A spiritual gift is a God design. We don't design it, God designs it. A God design and a God delivered. We don't, we don't create it, we don't design it, we don't even deliver it. It's heart delivered to us. A spiritual gift is a God design and God delivered ministry resource to be used for God's glory in concert with other believers, enabling Christ's church to effectively exalt Christ. Now you could maybe add a couple of words in word and deed. In gospel words and gospel deeds to exalt Christ as we're on mission, on message, and in ministry. In word and in deed as we fulfill the great commission which has been assigned to us as God's people. So this is the text, Ephesians 4. Now you'll notice something. <clears throat> I did this on purpose. I, I didn't, haven't read the text yet, but I did read the verse before our focus text begins in Ephesians 4.1. I read the last verse of Ephesians 3.20, and there was a reason for that. That last verse, you'll notice something. It's a doxology. It's a statement of praise to God. Go back and take a look at it. Now to him. See, this is praise. This is like, this is like standing up singing what we'll sing at the end. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is a statement of praise. Now to him. Who is this him? Jesus. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He is able to do far more abundantly. Why? Because he's got the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the body of Christ. It is at work within us. Holy Spirit is at work within us. Now, why is the Holy Spirit work within us? So that we, as the body of Christ, might exist in word and deed to his glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. To the glory of the Father who sent the Son, we now live in the body of Christ and we do so by Christ Jesus to whom we are united. Throughout all generations, this is unstoppable. It is irreversible. The work of our great God through the gospel of Christ throughout all the world is unstoppable throughout all generations. And then when generations cease and we're into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, it continues forever and ever. And then we do declare amen. There is your doxology. That is a concluding doxology of the first three chapters that began with a doxology. It began with a doxology. You'll find it in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, 228 words in one sentence. And the first six verses praise the Father. The next verses, 7 through 12, praise the Son. The last two verses, praise the Holy Spirit. The first six verses, praise the Father who has authored our salvation. And it ends with this, to the praise of His glorious grace. Then verses 7 through 12, praise to the Son who has accomplished our salvation. And then it ends with this, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then when you get to the last two verses, praising the Holy Spirit who applies the work of salvation, it ends with, to the praise of His glorious grace. Worship 
worship, worship, worship. That's what, that's why God made us. That's why God saves us. That's why God sustains us. And all of that wonderful Trinitarian doxology that praises our God for his Trinitarian gospel to his glory and honor, every single word of it is so crucial. Paul said, I can't even put a... I can't even put a period. So it's 228 words of one sentence to the praise of God. Then for 20, then for the rest of those chapters, chapters one, two, and three, he keeps repeating this in Christ, in Christ, Christ in you, you in Christ, in the beloved one. Accepted in the beloved one. He just keeps hammering it. This is gospel shorthand. Gospel shorthand is union with Christ. I'm in him. He's in me. We are in him. He is in us. We are, he has saved us, searched us, secured us, sealed us, sends us, sanctifies us. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. That is the hope of glory. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. No wonder he ends it with a doxology. But now there's something that every single one of you have heard me say that come here with any regularity. This is Paul's pattern. This is the way he does it. He gives you all of the gospel blessings that belong to the elect in Christ. He gives them that in the first half of what he writes. Then the second half, he tells them what the elect are to do with their lives for Christ. He tells you what does it mean to have life in Christ, the opening three chapters, Then he'll tell you how you live for Christ. Now, I know I'm repeating myself, but I take great comfort because Paul repeats himself in nine epistles. He does it time and time again. He opens with praise. He teaches the gospel blessings in Christ. You in Christ, Christ in you. Then he gives you the gospel life for Christ. And he does it that way because we constantly have a tendency to think what we do, we do for salvation instead of what we do, we do for Christ. We keep, we're constantly trying to get our works into our salvation. Our works are not what allows God to save us, not what allows God to keep us saved, or our works are not added to our salvation. Jesus' work has done it all, every bit of it. And it's his present work that keeps you in him. It's his present work that makes you with a heart that would wonder to stay connected to him and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ because he won't let you go. Nothing can pluck them out of my hand, Jesus promises. Well then, pastor, why do we do what we do? Get ready. Worship. Obedience is the act of the love of God's people to the love of Christ 
to the praise of his glorious grace. Our obedience is the evidence of our salvation and the instrument whereby we praise our Savior. If you love me, you keep my commandments. That's why Paul never tells you what to do for Christ until he tells you what Christ did for you. And now he's ready to turn. You say, amen, we're supposed to sing the doxology and leave, right? No. He said, amen, now, part two of the sermon. What shall we do? I was listening to a guy and I heard about this same story. The guy, the, the homiletics presser, that professor that said, I want you to know after you graduate from my class, after you graduate from my class and I send you out into into the ministry. I'm going to find out what church you're serving in. I'm going to go sit on the front row where nobody can see me except me, you when I'm sitting on the front row. And when you have finished expounding the text, I am then going to hold up a sign. And that sign, nobody else will be able to see it, but you'll see it. And the sign that I'm going to hold up after you finish expounding the text is a placard that says, so what? What does this mean? How does this impact your life? Paul's ready to tell us again. We saw it last week. 11 chapters in Romans expounding the gospel. So what? I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. I urge you to do this. 11 chapters praising God for the gospel. Then... Here's how you live to the praise of God. Same thing in Ephesians. Three chapters in Christ, in Christ, Christ in you constantly. Now, what do you who are alive in Christ do with your life for Christ? What do you do with it? And so how does he start it? Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. In fact, let me just read a couple of these verses for you. I don't know why I closed my Bible. I never do that. Here we are. Ephesians 4. And look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's how I want you to live. So what is the very first essential we learn about spiritual gifts stewardship, which we're getting to in just a couple of verses? First thing you learn is this, foundational essential is the stewardship of the Christian life. The stewardship of the... You now know what your life is in Christ. Three chapters. What does it mean to be bought with the blood, brought by the Spirit, clothed with His righteousness? What does that mean to be accepted in the Beloved? What does that mean in your life? So now that you know that life that you have, what is the stewardship of the Christian life before you, let me get it this way, before you can even contemplate spiritual gifts and the stewardship of spiritual gifts, you got to contemplate what it means to be alive spiritually in Christ. The stewardship of the Christian life. You're in Christ 
and Christ is in you. Now, what does that mean? Now, folks, you can't miss this. There's a play here with words and concepts that is uh, highly intentional and intensified. Here's Paul. He has just for three chapters told you what it means to be set free from sin in and through Jesus. You're free. You're free. He has set you free through his victory. Amen? So... How does Paul now identify himself? Prisoner. Prisoner. That's how he had, or can I put it this way? This is going to be important. Captive. I'm a captive. That's what a prisoner is. Someone that's been captivated. I'm captive. You see, this is so glorious. I can hardly stand it. This is so glorious. Here I was, a slave to sin, a slave to Satan, a slave to the world, a slave to death, a slave to the flesh. Here I was enslaved in my sin. God's common grace kept me from being as depraved as I would be, but I was totally depraved. I was living as a cosmic rebel against the Almighty. And it wasn't about His glory. It was about me. That's where I was. And I was dead in those sins. Then Jesus came. He died on the cross for my sins. He paid the penalty. He met my captors. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. He defeated the flesh. He defeated the world. He took them on. He defeated them at the cross. And he rose Christ victor. He has emancipated me. Now I am captured by his grace and his love. And I am not my own. I am his. Now, can't you see? how? What did we say about stewardship when we got started on this two years ago? Stewards own nothing. But are completely owned by Christ. Here it is. I have been set free. From Satan, sin, death, hell, the world. No longer can fear enslave, the fear of death enslave me. No longer can the fear of life enslave me. No longer can my guilt and shame enslave me. He has taken my sins to the cross, removed that guilt and shame, and the shower of His grace And the washing of the blood has set me free. Boldly I stand in Christ alone. I am his and he is mine. Death, all I've got to deal with is a shadow. No longer enslaved by the fear of death. No longer enslaved by the power of sin. I've been born again. If many man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. He has done this glorious work. Now... 
grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of Christ have captivated me. I'm his. And he's mine. Oh, hallelujah. What a savior. This is freedom. Praise his name forevermore. What does it look like to steward your life that you have in Christ? Your life you have is from Christ and in Christ. Now, the life you live from Christ and in Christ, what does it look like? He gives five markers of it. Here's the stewardship. Here's the life of the steward who is going to steward the gifts. Here's how to steward the Christian life. Here's what it looks like. He gives five elements of it. Number one, it's a worthy life. Live a life worth living. And it's not found in the idols, the empty idols of the world. It's not found in the deprivations of sin. It's not found in the idolatry of appetites. It is not found in the gilded toys of dust. It is not found in the number of zeros in a bank account. It is not found in the number of square feet in a house. It is not found in the number of titles in our job. That which is the worthy life is found in the life that is lived for Christ. Whether God's put me to dig ditches or to be president or kings of the nations in which he is king of kings. This is the worthy life. Every believer lives a worthy life. I sometimes hear people say, uh, you know, I, I hear people say to so, well, he's just, you know, he's just a mere human. Well, let me paraphrase C.S. Lewis. You've never met a mere human. Everyone you've met's been made in the image of God. There's nothing mere about it. And you've never met a mere Christian. I understand what C.S. Lewis meant on mere Christianity. But you haven't met a mere Christian. They're trophies of grace. Secured by Christ. And planted and put where he wants them. In their life of singleness or marriage, ministry, places, roles, relationships, vocations. He's got them there. Now. Shine as the lights of God's grace and glory. Walk in a manner worthy. Notice it's not a manner worthy. Doesn't say walk in a manner worthy to be called. It says walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The worth necessary to call you doesn't come from you or me. It comes from Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb. Because of his worth, we can now live lives worthy to honor the Lamb with our, they're going to be imperfect lives. They're going to be, they're going to be unlevel uh, uh, lives. But they can intentionally be lives worthy. Worthy of our calling. Embrace a worthy walk that gives glory to God. Embrace a gracious walk. Look at the two phrases. Humility 
and what? Humility and gentleness. The worthy life is not about us. It's about him. Live the life of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. Not just he must increase. You know, Jesus, I'm going to live this life. I hope you get more glory than me. No, no, no. Jesus, it's all about you, my life. You must increase and to make sure I must decrease. Not decrease in effort, not decrease in commitment to excellency, not decrease in intentionality, increase in attention. It's not about me. It's about you and me and you lifted up in all of my inadequacies, you being lifted up from me. So we walk the, the, the worthy life that's manifested in a gracious life, that's seen in a patient life with Patience. We can be patient. Do you know why we can be patient? You know sometimes why we're impatient? Because we just can't wait for the next thing. Or we're impatient because we don't want to miss anything. What does someone call it? FOMO, fear of missing out on something or something like that. See, we're patient because we know the best is always yet to come. I mean... I don't have to hurry up anything because God's timing is perfect. The test and the the adversary's work against me will end at the right time. That my God is sovereign. He is at work. He'll take me through the suffering. He'll take me through the adversity. He'll give me joy and the blessings to give him the glory. I'll learn to trust him in everything else. But I can be patient just like Job. In the midst of a broken world. Because in this world and the world to come. I know the best is yet to come. Not only a patient walk. Not only a gracious walk. Not only a worthy walk. But also a loving walk. I just had the opportunity to share with our officers. When we were spending some time in God's word. uh, Something that just struck me. As we want to be valiant for the truth, we need to be victorious in love. We need to be virtuous in love. You know, the Bible says that because of twisting the truth, denying the truth, and walking away from the truth, in the body of Christ on this side of eternity, there will be divisions. Paul says, I know there will be divisions because of those who abandon the truth. But there must not be, there should not be, there must never be divisions in the body of Christ because of the absence of love. Love covers. Love consoles. Love is worthy, gentle, patient, humble. But not only is there a loving walk and not only a patient walk, the, emancipa- the emancipated believer with the worthy walk, gracious walk, patient walk, loving walk, also has a walk that maintains the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice, we don't create unity. Only Jesus gives us unity. And we're about to hear that unity in just a moment. Only Jesus gives that unity. But the Spirit of God, who makes us one in the body of Christ, 
the Spirit of God dwells within each one of us. And we then, upon the unity of the Spirit, are to maintain it and mature it. That's what we're called to do, is to maintain and mature the unity of the Spirit which our God has given to us. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. See that word bond? You could also translate it belt. What does a belt do? It ties things together. And uh, I laugh because it takes a bigger belt to tie some of it together these days than it used to. But the belt ties it together, doesn't it? What is our belt? It's the belt of peace. We've got peace with God. We've got the peace of God. We've got the Prince of Peace at work within us. Therefore, in Christ, through the peace and the gospel of peace, we then work, we then work to maintain the unity. Now, do you all know why I was so excited that on the providence of God we were receiving members? Because er- almost every single one of those membership vows came from these verses. The peace and the purity of the church maintained through our distinct efforts. But we will never be able to do that until we have been emancipated from ourselves and our sin and our guilt, and our shame. But once we are emancipated, we're captivated as prisoners of the Lord for this kind of a walk, worthy, gracious, patient, loving, maintaining the peace, maintaining the purity of the body of Christ and its unity through the peace and the bond of peace. Well, let me give you a second one. A second one, and um, this is where we'll end today, is we've got unity and diversity, the stewardship of the church. Not only the stewardship of the Christian life, but what is the stewardship of the church? Look at the next verse. We'll finish with this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look at our unity. We don't create it. We inherit it. We have, we have by God's grace, we have one Lord. We've got one Lord. We were called. Well, let me just go ahead and begin where Paul began. We have one hope. We've got a living hope. We've got a blessed hope. We've got a coming hope. We have one hope, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Emancipator. Our hope is in Christ. Christ is our hope. He is the blessed hope that purifies us. It is Christ and his redeeming work that he really saves us from our sins. He saves us. This is our hope. He has saved me from the power of sin. He has saved me from the penalty of sin. He has saved me from from the persuasion of sin. He has saved me from the position of sin. He is saving me from the practice of sin. And when he comes or brings me to be with him, he will save me from the presence of sin and even the ability of sin and all of the consequences of sin. No sorrow no guilt, no death, no none, all tears wiped away because in him he is our 
living hope and our hope forever and ever. We do not, I'm so glad, I do not have to preach a message of a man-made religion that only offers the therapy of how to cope. I can preach the gospel of saving grace in Jesus Christ, which is the everlasting promise of hope. In Him, you get a new heart. In Him, you get a new life. In Him, you get a new record. In Him, you get a new family. In Him, you get a new home. In Him, you have eternity forever and ever. That's the hope that's secure. That's where we Christ's church is built on that hope. Not on what I want to make it, what I want it to be, but what He has made it to be as the risen Savior. Not only hope has He given, but he says he gives he gives um, he gives a unity of hope and a, uni- a unity that belongs uh, to our calling in Christ, which is one Lord, not many lords. Yes, he uses leaders in our life. He's going to get to that next week. We're going to get to the leaders he uses in our life. But we have one Lord, one Lord who is over all, one Lord who is Lord of all. And that is Jesus Christ. That's why the opening confession of the church was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the object of our faith. We've got one faith. Now that faith is not referring to the act of believing. It's referring to what you're believing. And that is the word of God that brings us to Jesus Christ. The faith, here, let me use the language of the epistle writer. It is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The inerrant, sufficient, infallible, um, everlasting truth of God's word that brings us to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we've got one Lord, we've got one faith, and we've got one baptism. Now, Harry, wait just a minute. I mean, the guys down the road, down the hill there, they're doing it different. What does this mean, one baptism? Oops, wrong baptism. Wrong baptism. I do not think this is talking about water baptism. I'm going to take you back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist gives us the clue of what this baptism is. It's the baptism of Jesus. He's got two of them. He pointed to Jesus. He points to Jesus. And what did he say about Jesus before he pointed to him? One is coming after me. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. He will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. And he will baptize those who are not his people with fire. Jesus has two baptisms. For those in Christ, by the power of the Spirit in Christ, he baptizes them with that same Spirit. And those who are apart from him, then he baptizes them with condemnation. He baptizes you with the Spirit to secure and seal and sanctify and send you in salvation. And he baptizes the chaff. Those who have rejected him, those who are apart from him, with the everlasting condemnation of the fire of hell itself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus secures you by his Holy Spirit? 
Do you believe that Jesus, do you believe that Jesus baptizes you because of the grace of God with your, with his Holy Spirit and secures you and seals you and sanctifies you and sends you? And do you believe that the wrath of God will baptize all apart from Christ with unquenchable judgment in which the worm dies not for all eternity. I believe if we believe that, we would be unstoppable in evangelism. It would... To use Paul's language here, we would be urged to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying. For Jesus is merciful. We have one baptism. We have one hope. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. And we have one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. There is our unity. Then he says, and I'll just finish and close with prayer. Then he says to each one of us, he has given a measure of gift. I love the unity God has given us. I love the uniqueness in which how God works on every single one of us. Did you know in creation where none of us are alike? He is uniquely, Harry, what about identical twins? They're not identical. They're close, but they're not identical. Go check their fingerprints. There's a lot that are very similar, but every one of us are unique. Our spiritual gifts are unique. The way he created you is is unique. Unity is not uniformity. God has designed you in creation. God has designed you in your redemption. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, overall one hope. Yes, there is our unity. But boy, hasn't he worked right within your life with specificity. Uniquely, his timing, his working, and what he's doing as he is conforming you to the image of Christ. Have you noticed all of the unity brings us back to Jesus? Who is our hope? Jesus. Who baptizes us? Jesus. Who is the object of our faith? Jesus. Who is our Lord? Jesus. Who sent Jesus for us? One God and Father who is over all, in all, and through all. This is amazing. This is glorious. But he uniquely works and he uniquely gives you a constellation of gifts that wrap up in a very spiritual gift that uniquely is changing throughout your entire Christian life as your sovereign God sovereignly works uniquely in you and me. Not to make much of us, but to make us so that we're free to make much of him. He's doing that in your life. So my invitation is very clear. If you and I are in Christ today, let's walk for Jesus. We're not walking for salvation. He took that walk for us to Calvary. Let's walk for Jesus. 
Let's just walk for Jesus. The worthy walk. The patient walk. The loving walk. The peace and unity maintenance walk. Celebrating what we are together in Christ. One Lord. One hope. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. To Him be glory forever and ever. And then take what He is uniquely doing in your life and bring it back to Him for His glory. And that will become a mitigated joy in your life in Christ Jesus. What glory is ours by His grace? He didn't bring you to himself by running you down an assembly line. Stamp, 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 stamp. He went out and found you. He sought you. He searched you. He saved you. He is working on you. He is sanctifying you. We all have the same unified foundation and the same destination. And all the glory of the journey he's taking us. As we walk for him. Father thank you for the moments in your word. Thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your glorious word. Thank you for this marvelous text of scripture. Oh God our God I'm so glad. So glad. That I can rest in the work of the Holy Spirit. To overcome all of my inadequacies. So Holy Spirit do your work now. Please speak. To that heart that has not yet come to Jesus, may they not walk in the world, the flesh, and the devil. Set them free that they may know the love of Christ. And being set free, freely give themselves fully to Christ. In fact, if you'd like to pray with someone, there will be uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord that are up here that would love to pray personally. And confidentially with you. Just come up here after the service. But brother. My my dear Savior. Take my brothers and sisters. Not simply by the hand. By the heart. May they rejoice in what we have together in Christ. And now may we walk together. For Christ. As you measure. Sovereignly. The work of grace. In our life. And I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.